Every life is marked by milestone moments. Every life is marked by milestone moments. These are the highs and the lows, the good, the bad, sometimes the ugly. Those things that if we were asked to trace the narrative of our lives, we would point to these things and say, man, I remember when that happened. I remember when this happened. It might be, for you, your baptism. It might be the first date with the guy who ended up being your husband. It might, for you, be a diagnosis that came out of the blue completely unexpectedly. It could be the birth of your child or your children. Whatever the case may be, we all have these milestone moments that happen at crucial crossroads in our lives. But I think one of the most fascinating dynamics in life is that more decisive, more determinative than these crossroad moments are the roads that we travel between the crossroads, the the little, not so little, day in, day out, disciplines and decisions that we deploy that actually determine our character and our conduct when we do arrive at the crossroads. I remember when I was in high school, our basketball team at my high school in Houston had never even sniffed the playoffs. We had never been to the playoffs as a school. And my senior year, we entered the season not even able to practice at the school because there was a construction project going on. The gym was being occupied by the volleyball team. And so our basketball coach, made all 20 or so of us JV and varsity players load up in our cars and drive to the nearest YMCA so that we could practice in September, in October. And I'll never forget, just there at that YMCA, we would do the most mundane, the most tedious drills over and over, shooting free throws, ad nauseum, pivot away from pressure, the three-man weave, on and on and on. And then Then we would go outside into the crisp early September Houston fall and begin conditioning on the outdoor track at the YMCA. Well, not only had we never sniffed the playoffs, every season we opened our basketball year against our crosstown rival, our arch nemesis, the Memorial Mustangs. (laughs) And... We hadn't won that game for as long as anybody could remember. But I will never forget that first, first play off of the opening tip. We won the opening tip off. And Alex Coleman, our point guard, brings the ball down. I was coming off of the left wing. I took a pick off of the baseline, sprung open on the right side, took a pass from Alex, shot a fadeaway turnaround jumper that I had never shot in my life, much less made. And it just went right through, I mean, just a little string music to start the game. I remember looking at my coach as I ran back down court to play defense, and he just went, like, if Richard's making that kind of stuff, we got a shot tonight. (laughs) And sure enough, we won that game. I will never, thank you so much. Yes, thank you. (laughs) Glory days, they'll pass you by. So I remember what it was like running off of that court that night. I remember the feeling of that, that crossroad moment of that win But I also know this to be true. That night did not happen that night. That night was 
prepared for. That night was built brick by brick in September and in October at the YMCA gymnasium on that outdoor track when it was 104 degrees and 112% humidity. That's when we won that game. You know this dynamic to be true. The most important stuff that you do in the world is the stuff that nobody sees. How many times have you heard that your character is who you are when nobody's watching. Isn't that the truth? It's one thing when we, we show up at church and we've all, you know, most of us have bathed and brushed our teeth and hi, hello, hello, yes, praise the Lord, good to see you, brother. But it's when we're at home. It's when we're at home, that's where the real work gets done. It's what happens when nobody's watching. It's what happens on the road between the crossroads. This principle, th this law is so universal, it is so immutable that you even see it play out in the life of Jesus himself. As you and I are preparing ourselves to celebrate Easter in four weeks, as we prepare ourselves and we are moving toward Easter, we're gonna spend the next few weeks in a teaching series called Crossroad. We're gonna study, we're gonna take a close look at the journey of Jesus to the cross and the resurrection. Because it's in that journey to the cross that the Bible tells us not only the story of Easter, but it's in his journey to the cross, that crossroad that he walked, that Jesus establishes a, a paradigm and a pattern for you and me to emulate, for us to, to imitate in our daily lives with him. You know, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus made it very, very simple what it means to be a Christian, to be a, a follower of Jesus. That's what, that's what a Christian is. Look at what the Bible says in Matthew 16. In Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. That's pretty much it. In a nutshell, give up your own way and follow me. Now, those of you who have been around here for a while, you know that I'm married way over my head. Julie said something about three weeks ago that was so profound that I've, I've come back to this over and over and over again. And it's not why we're doing this series, but when I read this verse, I couldn't help but think about it. One dark morning as we were having coffee together, she said, you know, every love relationship ultimately comes down to submission. And I have to tell you, at first I, I kind of pushed back. I was like, hmm, I love that journey for you. That sounds, that sounds like something you ought to explore a little more. But as I've thought about it, I've thought about our marriage. I know for a fact when I submit to Julie, when I submit my wants, needs, and desires to, to focus on loving her the way Christ wants me to love her, everything works better. <laughs> I'm just, which by the way, if you're here today and you're not married, if you're, a, if you're a student or a single adult and you think maybe one day you'd like to be married, put this at the top of your list, of your criteria for what you're looking for. 
marry someone you want to submit to. Ruh-ro. That just got real in a hurry, didn't it? Marry someone you want to submit to? Yeah. Marry someone you want to submit to. Now, with Julie, it's because of her relationship with Christ, because of her faith, I'm not scared to submit to her. I don't always like it, but I'm not scared of it. There, there are times when I have to kind of talk myself into it. Anybody else ever have trouble submitting to people you love? Can I just see a show of hands? If your hand's not in the air right now, you are lying in church. It's hard. We, we have this natural bent. I, I think we're all predisposed to self-preservation and self-advancement. In, in short, we're all, we're all kind of predisposed to self. <laughs> I mean, I, I like the kingdom of me. That's just, I'm just left to my own devices. But through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, through the sanctifying work of the Holy Julie, there are these opportunities. I'm just kidding. She's not holy, but she's good. There is this, this process that happens where we, we become more like Christ. Every love relationship requires submission. Jesus had his crossroad moments on the road to the cross. We're, we're going to see that over the next few weeks. It's fascinating to me to see the, the struggle that Jesus went through. I think particularly in the Garden of Gethsemane. There's the struggle that he went through when he was explaining to his closest followers that he was about to be crucified. And, and Peter, the loudest one of them all, said, may it never be, Lord. That, that won't happen to you. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You're, you're getting between God and what he has for me and me. Get out of the way. So there's this, this constant call to submission to follow Christ. Now, in, in the book of Matthew and throughout, as Jesus makes his way to the cross, he is kind of issuing his, his final teachings. It's kind of like he knows his time is drawing to a close. He knows that he'll face the cross. He knows that he will come out on the other side in the resurrection. But he knows that he first has to go through the cross. He has to go through separation and alienation from God the Father. And, and so he's... he's taking this all into account as he begins this journey to the cross. Now, today we're going to look at what is referred to as the triumphal entry. Jesus' entrance into the town of Jerusalem for the last time. Jesus' earthly ministry covered a lot of ground. He had begun in Canaan where he turned the water into wine at the wedding. He had ministered in Bethany. He had been to Nazareth. He had been to Galilee. He had been on the Sea of Galilee. But this is the final entrance into Jerusalem. It's referred to as the triumphal entry. This is how the Bible describes it. Look at Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 and 2. As Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into the village over there, he said, and as soon as you enter it, you will see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. 
Now you'll notice I referenced also Zechariah 9, 9. That's because in the Old Testament, 500 years before this day, 500 plus years, the prophet Zechariah had prophesied to Israel that the Savior would come on a donkey, that the Savior would come on a colt. Now, the means of transportation is significant here. The triumphal entry would have brought to the Jerusalem populace's mind the occupation of Rome. That, that at this time, Rome owned Jerusalem and Judea, and they owned it by military might. And whenever Rome showed up, they showed up on horses and stallions and infantry. But here, the Son of God shows up on the colt of a donkey. It's a, it's a statement of humility. The humility of the God-man as he enters Jerusalem for the last time. Prophesied 500 years before it happened. Jesus fulfilled that prophecy and over 300 other prophecies from the Old Testament. Look at verse six. Now the two, two disciples did as Jesus commanded. They brought the donkey and the colt to him and they threw their garments over the colt and he sat on it. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him and the others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Jesus was in the center of the procession and the people all around him were shouting, Praise God for the son of David. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in highest heaven. The entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. Who is this, they asked. And the crowds replied, it's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. The whole city was in an uproar. It's a great picture, isn't it? That as Jesus comes in riding this young donkey, people began laying their garments on the ground as a sign of respect for royalty. That was what they did. And this is where we get the tradition of Palm Sunday. Elsewhere in the Bible, it says that they cut palm leaves and placed them on the ground in front of the colt that Jesus rode into Jerusalem. Palm Sunday, that one week before Good Friday, before Easter. Isn't it amazing how fickle the crowd can be? Isn't it amazing? Here they are shouting, Hosanna, praise God in the highest. Hosanna, Hosanna. And yet so many of this same crowd a week later would be shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Give us Barabbas, crucify him, crucify him. But I love that the Bible says the town was in an uproar. The town was in an uproar. Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem marks the beginning of the end for the status quo. When Jesus entered into Jerusalem this time, it marked the beginning of the end for the status quo. I would encourage you to go and read the different gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Read the different accounts of the end of Jesus' life over the next few weeks. You're going to see that after this triumphal entry, Jesus begins to, to really focus in his teaching. And he, he particularly has some really strong words for the folks who thought they had it all figured out. 
Have you ever been around somebody who thought they had it all figured out? I mean, that Jesus went at these folks. They were known as the Pharisees. They were the, the self-appointed watchdogs, the religious intelligentsia of that day. And Jesus kind of came at them with, with both barrels in no uncertain terms, letting them know that they did in fact not have it all figured out. Look at what he says, Matthew chapter 21, verse 12. Jesus entered the temple and he began to drive out all the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. He said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. I love that the Bible chose to put this in there. I, I, I appreciate the passion that Jesus brings to seeing purity in worship, purity in people connecting with God. If you walked in today and you think that Jesus is kind of a skinny jeans, you know, oat milk latte sipping guy, you're missing the point. Jesus drank whole milk on sugared cereal and had double espressos. And he had a couple before this moment. <laughs> but I want you to see what he's doing here. Remember we said that this is the beginning of the end for the status quo. Jesus Jesus is very, very deliberately making a point here. Jesus redefined worship as a holy encounter and not a transaction. Jesus redefines worship as a holy encounter and not a transaction. Now, we can look at the money changers and the people who are profiting and they're prostituting the worship of God to make money. That, and that we look at that, and that's kind of a no-brainer, bad idea. But I got to tell you, more than once in my life, I have tried to treat God transactionally. Have you ever, have you ever thought, God, if I'll go to church three out of four Sundays a month, if you'll do this, or if you'll do that, like, like God is ever gonna owe me jack. That's a transactional engagement with God. That's what the people in Jerusalem had reduced their worship to. It, it was transactional. Yes, they were, they were buying and selling, but the only reason that the people buying and selling the animals for sacrifices could make money was because the people were doing it. You see, they had traded their relationship with God, the relationship which God had chosen Israel for. They had traded that relationship for rules and regulations and rituals. And when you empty rules and regulations and rituals of any relationship, it quickly becomes bankrupt. We see this with our kids all the time. Man, how many times when Emily and Joe were growing up, I wanted it to be transactional. How many of you have ever bribed your children? Can I see a show of hands? We do that sometimes. Sometimes it's called survival. But over time, you, you can only bribe them so much. Over time, there has to be a relationship 
of trust where your children have to trust that when you tell them what to do or what not to do, you're doing that for their best interest. Again, it's, it's relational, not transactional. And what had happened here was they had completely abandoned the relationship because the rules and the rituals and the regulations are easier. It's just easier to check off a to-do list than it is to engage in relationship. And Jesus is trying to overturn this reality. Jesus is interested in a complete coup d'etat of that solid state system that they had become so comfortable in. That's why he turned over the tables in the temple. He is interested in completely redefining worship to make it this holy encounter between God and his people, whether it's privately or collectively, it is a holy encounter and it is not a transaction. But then look at what he said to them in verses 27 and 28. He speaks directly to them and he says, what sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. Outwardly, you look like righteous people, but inwardly, your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. Watch, watch what Jesus is doing here. It's not just the Pharisees. I, I think if we look at the Pharisees and go, boo, Pharisees, boo, you're bad. We're missing the point. Because Jesus is redefining faith as an inside-out process rather than an outside-only pretense. He's redefining faith to say this is an inside-out process. See, they had gotten so good on the externals, they had forgotten the internal. They had forgotten the soul care. They had forgotten confession and repentance of sin. They had forgotten engagement with one another. They had forgotten compassion. They had forgotten justice. They had gotten away from that and they covered all of the externals. They covered the externals so well, they started to make up rules about the rules. The Pharisees had hundreds of rules about the rules God had given Moses 1,400 years earlier. Can I just give you a little, a little aside? Anytime you talk to somebody who is legalistic, Anytime, maybe we gravitate toward rules over relationship, every time that happens, it's because of fear. It's, it's because somebody is afraid of maybe total authenticity, total vulnerability. And, and so they go to the rules, the regulations, the rituals, because they're afraid to let down their guard. They're afraid to let you see inside. Maybe they're even afraid to let God see inside. Which, by the way, spoiler alert, he already does. He already knows. And he loves you anyway, as is. He loves you anyway, as is. And he loves you 
anyway too much to leave you there. You see, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. If you've been around here, you know I'm kind of a word nerd. I, I like words. Jerusalem is a really interesting word. Everybody say Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Jerusalem, in the Hebrew, it's a, it's a compound word of two Hebrew words. Yeru, which means flowing. It's like a river. Yeru and shalem, which also gives us the word shalom. It's that completeness, that wholeness that we were created for that God and God alone can provide. So Jerusalem is this flowing wholeness and completeness which is exactly what happens anytime Jesus enters anywhere. Wherever Jesus comes, there is wholeness and completeness. Wherever you invite him in, whenever I invite him in to my marriage, to my my work, to my hobbies, to my free time, to my parenting, to anything, Jesus brings wholeness and completeness. And so when Jesus enters, Jerusalem, he enters this this flowing wholeness and completeness. It is exactly what he offers anyone who would take up their cross and follow him. Anyone who would take up their cross and follow him and give up their own way. Jesus has flowing wholeness and completeness. I have come that they might have life and have it to the full, overflowing and abundant. Would you bow your heads with me for just a moment? And in this moment, I want to invite you to just consider for a second Jesus' triumphal entry. Jesus' triumphal entry. The one that the Bible talks about says that people were going before him and laying their their coats and, and palm branches on the ground as a show of respect and honor. But I wonder in this pre-Easter season. Have you invited Jesus to make a triumphal entry into your life? In the book of Revelation, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. He just knocks. And he says, If anyone Open the door. I will come in and have a meal with them. There's a painting that hangs in a cathedral in London that depicts this verse in Revelation. And it depicts Christ standing at a door and knocking But unless you know to look for it, you might miss the most important part of this painting. 
the side of the door where Jesus is knocking, there is no doorknob. The door must be open from the inside. He is making the initiative. This is grace, amazing grace. But he knocks, giving you, giving me the opportunity to invite him in. To invite him in to a triumphal entry in our lives personally, relationally, If you're here and you have never taken that step, or maybe you're watching online, as a church, we wanna give you the opportunity to answer the door, to open it and invite him into your life for relationship. If that's you, then we invite you just to pray a prayer of beginning, a prayer of commitment saying something like this in your own words, just silently from your heart to his, just say, Jesus, I need you. I need you for the forgiveness of my sin. So I confess my sin to you, all of it. Holding nothing back in order to receive all of your grace, all of your forgiveness, all of your truth. And I will follow you from this moment forward, period. Lord, I pray this prayer in your name. I want to ask you to remain with your heads bowed for just another moment. But if that was your prayer, this is the biggest moment of your life. Nothing else is as important. Nothing else is as significant as this moment. And so as a church, we want to help with what's next. In just a moment, we'll give you some directions on how to get that ball rolling. Don't leave it here in the seat or online, wherever you may be. Don't leave it in this moment. Know that this is a beginning. And God has given to you the church as a gift to help. And like I said, we'll tell you about that in just a second, but very quickly, if that was your prayer, as our heads are bowed, would you just raise your hand? If you just prayed that triumphal entry prayer, would you just raise your hand and hold it up for a moment as a statement spiritually and know that as a church, we celebrate that with you. Our family tradition around here is you can go ahead and put your hands down, but we're gonna put our hands together and tell you, welcome home. Welcome home. 